0: And thank you. Good morning, Fondren. It is, I, I got to correct two quick things. Uh, and I had a chance to meet Nick this weekend. Great guy, great church. First of all, I am not a big deal. I got to make sure you understand that. I am a big sinner, saved once for all, but being saved every single day of my life. You know what I'm saying? Saved for myself. But I appreciate Nick's enthusiasm. I am no big deal I, I, you know, at all. But I'm thrilled to be here. And the other thing is, I'm not an expert on the topic that I'm gonna share with you today. In fact, if anybody tells you they are an expert in bringing diverse people together to walk, work, worship God as one in a local church, do not listen to that person. There are no experts in what we're talking about. But over the last 20 years, I've gained a measure of expertise and I'm excited to share that with you this morning. What is a big deal is what God is doing at Fondren Church. I just don't say that lightly. My hat's off to Robert uh, and the pastoral staff here because you may not know, but planning a church is no easy task, you know? Uh, in fact, about one out of every three church plants fails within the first three to five years. And even those that get beyond that, there, there's another side that gets down the road and, 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 and the statistics get worse. So the fact that you're at what, seven or eight years, I think, right, Fondering Church. So you've made it through that first three to five year hump. And then, and what God's doing, this, what a wonderful facility. You know, the vibe that I, I get a chance to be in a lot of churches, obviously. And the vibe of you, of you, the people here, coupled with what God has done in this facility and building what he wants to do. I think there's great things in store, and that's what's a big deal this morning. So I want to say that. Also, Van, great friend I've had a chance to get to know. He represents you so well uh, with the pastors in the city here. Uh, my good friend Donovan Thigpen over here, Matt McGee at One Church. Uh, Matt's in Atlanta now, but Van, you do a great job representing the church and the heart of the church and all that. So that's, all that's what's a big deal this morning. I just want to make sure we say that. Uh, but having said that, I am very excited to be here this morning and to share with you some of the things that I have learned and reflected on over the past 20 plus years in seeking to bring diverse people together beyond ethnic, economic, socio, uh, socioeconomic lines, all the distinctions of this world that otherwise divide. And I want to encourage your church uh, in that journey. By the way, let me just say at the outset, uh, it's not that a church is biblical or not biblical in this regard that is in terms of its diversity. Uh, just like our own individual sanctification, a church should be on a journey collectively towards sanctification. Where is the collective church going? Revelation 7, 9, every nation, tribe, people and tongue, someday walking, working, worshiping God together as one. And, and so every collective church should be inching its way forward towards that vision over time. So again, it's not uh, that you are or not biblical or are or not diverse, it's a journey. And I hope to encourage and inspire you this morning as you collectively wrestle with the things we will out of the book of Ephesians uh, this morning and looking ahead towards application. It'll be really encouraging and inspiring for you this morning, right? Well, make a long story short, born out of wedlock, 1961, uh, latchkey kid before the term was coined, selling Avon with my mom on the streets of Alameda, California at seven, uh, later on a dishwasher and, and hard worker all my life kind of thing, grew up Catholic. Uh, and I was in a work scholarship program, so I attended uh, Jesuit uh, uh, schools and, uh, and worked in the rectories and all that. Uh, was a good enough baseball player to play in college, so I, I played uh, a year and a half at a junior college in Arizona. After my first year, I got saved in a uh, conservative Baptist church in Scottsdale, Arizona, where I'm from. And, uh, and then three months later, I, 1981, whisked away to Liberty University. It was about 2,000 people on a full-ride scholarship uh, playing Division I baseball. And so I went from Jesuit Catholicism all the way to independent fundamentalist Baptist whatever uh, in 1981 at Liberty University. And that was a, talk about a swing and a, and a shift. I was discipled by Keith Green Music. And, uh, and, and, uh, but in 1983, after I finished my senior year, I was too slow to get drafted. They said I ran like I had a piano on my back. And so that was the end of my baseball career. And uh, I had nothing better to do. I was a psych major, so this Baptist church, conservative Baptist church, uh, where I, I, I'd gotten saved a few years before, invited me to come be a high school pastor. I didn't even know you could get paid the whopping sum of $400 a month is what I was making. But I took this youth group, and about a year and a half into it, the youth group's growing, everything's going great. The pastor called me in one day said, you know, the kids seem to really respond to you, and they like you, and you, you know, seem to be doing a good job. I go, yeah, it seems like they like me and all that. And he said, do you like doing this? I'm like, yeah, I really like it. you know." And I, it's pretty funny. He says, well, if you want to keep doing it, you can't keep giving your testimony every week right? So I'm like, well, what do you do? He says, you go to seminary. So instantly I thought of Gregorian chants, robes, the whole works, right? He said, no, no, it's not like that. You can go to Dallas and wear gray slacks and a blue coat, or you can go to Portland, Oregon, Western Seminary and wear jeans. I went to Portland, Oregon to wear jeans. That's how I chose my seminary and uh, continued in youth ministry, etc. Ten years later, I was hired by a large uh, megachurch in Uh, little rock it was 2000 at the time 1993 went to 5000 people in those eight years my youth group 150 to 600 my staff from an assistant to nine full-time people on full-time staff working with seventh through twelfth graders got to design and build a three and a half million dollar student center so I, i lived that life if you will and in the late 90s one day i looked around at this otherwise amazing church that i had the privilege of being a part of and i realized the only people of color in this church were janitors and something bothered me about that. I wasn't really sure in the moment what bothered me about that. But over the next few years, I began to open up the Word of God. Of course, I'd been to seminary at that time, a master's in exegesis, now a doctorate in exegetical theology. Uh, and, and I essentially threw out what I'd been taught in seminary about the nature of the New Testament church and did my own homework, if you will. And what I came to discover is that every church in the New Testament outside of Jerusalem was what we would call today a multi-ethnic church. A church in which Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rich and poor, walked, worked, and worshipped God together as one. And this was what propelled the witness of the gospel. It wasn't so much their words and explanation of salvation in Jesus Christ. It was the demonstration of God's love for all people that was witnessed by the lost when local churches were formed again, filled with Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, men and women, walking, working, worshipping God Together as one. In fact, Jesus said, uh, he didn't say, let them hear your good words, right? Matthew five sixteen he let us let them see your good works. And the good works that he had in mind, as well as the Apostle Paul, uh, collectively for a church, was that we should be a reflection of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, because this becomes the compelling witness, the credible witness of our messaging that God, in fact, loves all people, not just people like us. So I want to take you quickly on my homework, if you will, journey, and then I want to open up the book of Ephesians and exegete that with you this morning. But um, if you have slides, I think we have slides. You can just follow me if you would. Uh, Next slide, please. Um, In the late 90s, as I was sharing with you, I began, of course, I had a Catholic background reflecting on the prayer of Christ, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. Next slide. So I began to ask myself this question. If the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, then why on earth is the local church? If Jesus taught us to pray that what's going on up there ought to be going on down here, and we know the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, Revelation 7, 9 says every nation, tribe, people, and tongue, part of the the eternal, the celestial, the universal, if you will, kingdom, uh, body of Christ, the bride of Christ, If the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, why on earth is the church? Next slide, please. In 2012, according to the latest research, 86.3% of churches in this country fail to have at least 20% diversity in their attending membership. Churches are 10 times more segregated than the neighborhoods they're in and 20 times more segregated than nearby public schools. Surely it breaks the heart of God that the vast majority of churches in this country remain stubbornly segregated by race, class, and culture and that little has changed in the now more than 100 years since it was first observed that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. Brothers and sisters, it should not be so. But more than bemoaning the systemic segregation of the American church, uh, from an emotional standpoint, that segregation is having a very real and inhibiting, uh, inhibiting our ability as a church to advance a credible witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ in an increasingly diverse, painfully polarized, and cynical society. Uh, next slide, please. My good friend Dave Olson from the uh, Evangelical Covenant Church back in 2010 completed a, a study of over 200,000 churches in this country uh, called the American uh, Church Research Project. And among other things, he found this, that between 1990 and 2009, at a time in American history, when more than 56 million people became American citizens through birth or legal immigration, on top of the roughly 275 or 300,000 that were already here, 56 million more additional people, do you know how many people became active members of a local church in that 20-year span? just 446,540 people, that is less than 1%. If you were a room full of pastors, I'd I'd say, look at me. No one is listening. No one is listening. And I contend the primary reason they are not listening, next slide please, is because an increasingly diverse and cynical society is no longer finding credible our message of God's love for all people. Why? Because we preach it We proclaim it from otherwise systemically segregated pulpits and pews. Our message is unbelievable. Next slide. So what does this look like in real time? Well, in 2001, we established, uh, planted our church, urban center, 66% of kids without dads in the home, highest violent crime, 30% poverty in the area we're in. Uh, And and so we we had what Christianity today would call a few years later a big dream in Little Rock. And that was essentially to bring diverse people together to walk Work, Worship, God together as one in the urban center of Little Rock, Arkansas. And, uh, and, and a couple years into this, in 2003, we were able to rent um, a, a facility. Uh, it was an abandoned Walmart. It was 80,000 square feet for the amazingly low sum of just 10 cents a square foot. So you do the math real quick. We got that 80,000 square feet for about $650 a month. Um, that tells you how bad this property was. Okay, well, we got it. The first thing we had to do was hire an animal trapper to trap all the animals that were living in the ceilings and get rid of the fried rats behind the uh, the uh, uh, breaker boxes. And our people lived with flea bites on their legs for six months. We couldn't get rid of the fleas in this place because of all the fe- uh, cats. Uh, but we were so thankful to have a home. We went in there like ants, cleaned it up, and began to operate there. We were there for 12 years. Uh, uh, in 2016, we finally, uh, it took us 10 years, but we purchased and moved into a hundred thousand square foot Kmart right up the street, so we moved up in the world from renting a Walmart to owning a Kmart, right, in our community. But uh, but back in the day, we were in this old Walmart, early days of being there, and uh, it was connected to a Kroger grocery store and a little strip mall. And uh, one morning, a couple of our ladies had gone next door to uh, do some shopping before church, right, in the grocery store, and there they met an African American woman. So they invited this woman, told her about Mosaic, said, "Why don't you come over and check it out this morning?" So she came. And you know, like a lot of Walmarts, there's a big glass front across the the front of the building, right? A bunch of glass uh, walls and doors, windows. And so when this African-American woman showed up uh, to the church that morning, this is what she did. She put her hands up against the glass and looked inside. So let me ask you a question. What do you think she was looking for? I guarantee you, any person of color in this room knows what she was looking for, right? Is there anyone in there like me? Now... Uh, full disclosure, my mother was white. Uh, My biological father, who I never had a relationship with, uh, he was, I'm told, a Sicilian. His father was from Sicily and his mother was a Russian Jew from Kiev. So, Russian Jew, Italian, white, an American mutt. That's what I am, right? I mean probably a lot of you, just a good old American mutt, right? Uh, But I identify as white. My mother was white and and when I got saved, the churches I worked in were all white until uh, 19 years ago when I started this church. So what if this woman with her face up against the glass, she looks inside and she sees me, the white pastor, and, and, I'm, and I'm preaching, God loves all people, God loves all people. And then she sees the all-white band behind me, right? I'm old enough to remember, the AWB, there actually was a band in the 70s called the all-white band. But she looks up and sees AWB behind me and they're singing, God loves everybody, God loves everybody. And then she looks over on the wall of the church and there's a corkboard. And on the corkboard is a map of the world. And on this map, there's pictures of people from this church, like singles and families. And next to their pictures are little pins with a flag of a country. And then there's like a, a little yarn that goes from Little Rock, Arkansas to Papua New Guinea or Little Rock, Arkansas to South Africa or Little Rock, Arkansas to Paris, France. And she sees that and she concludes and she says to herself, this church, it seems, is willing to send its people and its resources across the ocean but I've never seen these people across the street. What could she conclude? Well, I guess the God you're preaching about, you're singing about, and you're sending people exporting around the world is the God of the white people because I don't see any of my people in there. And what is any different about that today than two or even 3,000 years ago when the Hittites had their gods and the Egyptians had their gods and the Phoenicians had their gods and the Jews had their God? What is any different? That is how the systemic segregation of the American church is playing in an increasingly diverse society. The world looks into our segregated churches, and it appears that we each have our own God, which creates confusion. It's not a compelling witness. Now, you might say, well, come on, Mark. I mean, when God looks down on the city of Jackson, uh, he sees the beautiful, the wonderful diversity of the church here in Jackson, because we know the Church of Jackson is bigger than just Fondren Church. Fondren Church, one church, all these different, Pine Lake, they all make up the collective Church of Jackson. And when God looks down on the city of Jackson, he sees the wonderful diversity of his kingdom. So what's, what's the big deal? And I'm like, status quo is all well and good. Everything's fine if you're trying to evangelize Jesus. You catch me? You see what I'm saying? Are you trying to lead Jesus to Jesus here at Fondren? You see what I'm saying? Because it's not God who needs to understand, to see, to enjoy, to be drawn by the diversity of his kingdom. It's this woman with her face up against the glass. And she doesn't see that. She sees systemic segregation as if we each have our own gods. So not only bemoaning statistically, mostly we have to recognize that the American church, the systemic segregation of the American church uh, is undermining the very gospel we love and would otherwise proclaim in a compelling, incredible way. So with that as a backdrop, next slide. What I came to realize is, as I mentioned, every church in the New Testament was what we would call today a multi-ethnic, economically diverse church. Jews and Gentiles, rich, poor men and women, walking, working, worshiping God together as one. If you have a phone, you can take a picture, study this stuff later, but bottom line, out of the New Testament, just three simple ways to make the case. Uh, Christ envisioned the multi-ethnic church on the night before he died, John chapter 17. I pray that they'd be one so that the world would know God's love and believe. Uh, Luke describes the multi-ethnic church in action. In other words, the model church of the New Testament is not Jerusalem, it's Antioch. Antioch is everything you want to be. It's mega-missional, multi-site, and, and multi-ethnic. Uh, which church sends missionaries to the world for the first time? Antioch. Which is the first to take a collection for the poor? Antioch, not just for themselves. Why? Because when your church reflects its community, mission isn't a program, it's who you are. So Luke describes what this church looks like. Acts chapter 11, 19 through 26, and Acts 13.1, he not only has just described what the church looks like, um, uh, rooted in Christ's prayer, but that also he, he, he says, now here's the five leaders of the church. You can look it up, Acts 13, 1, he lists them not only by name, but by their cultural background. Their ethnicity, two are from Africa, one from the Middle East, one from Asia Minor, and one from the Mediterranean. This is called indirect prescription and exegesis. In other words, the readers of the New Testament, people reading Luke and the book of Acts, would understand on the heels of explaining and describing what the church should look like for the sake of the gospel. He says that multi-ethnic church is led by multi-ethnic leadership with responsible authority for the church who are modeling for the people what it means to be one on earth as it is in heaven. So not only did Christ envision and Luke describe the multi-ethnic church, but ultimately Paul prescribes it uh, in in, and throughout his life and writings. I just put a couple up here, book of Ephesians, Romans. We'll look at Ephesians this morning. Uh, But this is actually what Paul gave his life for. Now, when theologians, when we use the term prescribe or prescription, it basically means it's not just nice, it's necessary. It's not optional, it's biblical. If you're going to be a church, wherever possible, your church should reflect its community. This is the message of Paul. It's called the gospel of Gentile inclusion. And did you know this? Maybe you didn't, but there's actually two gospels in the New Testament. There's actually two gospels in the book of Romans. The, book, the gospel, the word, just means good news. You can look it up. I wish I had time. I had to pick one or the other this morning. Romans or Ephesians? Romans or Ephesians? So I'm going with Ephesians. But if I could exegete Romans, you'll get to the end of Romans 16.25 when he speaks to the diverse church at Rome. And he says, and now may God establish you, multi-ethnic church, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. You're like, what the heck is this my gospel stuff? What if I came to you this morning and I, I said, hey, I'm so glad to be with you. I'm here to preach my gospel. Like we'd all like freak out, right? That's what the entire book of Romans is. Paul's gospel rooted in the capital G gospel, which is atonement, redemption and, uh, through faith in Christ, but the gospel of Paul, he calls a mystery. Romans 1, we'll see that in Ephesians here in a moment. Uh, Colossians 1, this mystery of Christ is the gospel of Paul. The, of, and his gospel, Ephesians 3.6, is the gospel of Gentile inclusion. That is not just the Jews, but anybody can be saved. Not just the Jews, but anyone can be a part of a church. Not just the Jews, but anybody can be part of the coming kingdom of God. This is the gospel of Paul. Rooted in the capital G gospel of Jesus Christ. He calls it his own, Romans chapter 16, and essentially this is what he lived and died for, was not merely proclaiming Jesus as salvation, but proclaiming the impact of that, that Gentiles as well can be part of salvation, the local church coming in the kingdom of God. So the gospel of, of, of Gentile inclusion is essentially the gospel of Paul. He calls it his own, Romans 16, and I want to show you that in the book of Ephesians this morning, uh, break it down. So we're going to go through the whole book of Ephesians in the next 20 minutes, and And uh, hopefully, it's not drinking from a fire hose, but let me make the case from Paul's letter to Ephesians. And by the way, whenever you read Paul, this is what he's talking about. Um, Sure, he contextualizes for Philippi and Colossae, but one man, one message. And and wherever he is writing and speaking, this is what he's talking about, what we're going to talk about today, in essentially the Mount Everest of this case, the book of Ephesians. Right? So turn to your Bibles, if you would, Ephesians chapter 1. Just kind of follow along with me. Ephesians chapter 1. what's happening verses 3 through 11 particularly Paul is speaking to the individual believer in the church at Ephesus multi-ethnic keep that in mind the individual believer is one with God through faith in Jesus Christ this is a huge identity passage you've been adopted redeemed chosen forgiven all these wonderful benefits have come to you the individual through faith in Jesus Christ your identity is in Christ Ephesians chapter 1 And by the way, I should back up and say the entire theme of the book of Ephesians, really the entire theme of every letter Paul writes in his entire life is this, the unity of the church for the sake of the gospel. The unity of the church for the sake of the gospel. That's the theme. So, again, proving the theme, chapter 1, individual believers are one with God, unified with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Here's all the benefits, your identity in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 11. He speaks to the church in writing, and and again, he's been speaking to everybody, talking about individual salvation in God through faith in Jesus Christ, etc., our oneness with God uh, the Father. Chapter 2, verse 11, he turns his attention to a segment of that church in the moment. And that segment is Gentiles. So imagine Jews and Gentiles. Hard for us to get our head around that. in terms. I mean, we can understand it, but not emote, because Gentiles is basically everybody else. In the American South where we are, if I can say it like this, he's saying, now let me talk to you black people for a moment. That's how it would have felt to the readers. You see what I'm saying? In the context of the American South, that's how it would feel. Let me talk to all you black people in the room for a moment. okay? And then you can read. You can read along. Ephesians 2.11 going through. He says, uh, he, he says, I'm paraphrasing for sake of time, but he says, you remember how you were... Um, uh, that you were separated from the promises of God outside the will of the Father. You had no hope. You had no, n- none of that stuff w- was for you. You remember that, Gentiles? You were called the dogs, the uncircumcision. You remember, remember how that was? That would have felt, he says, that what, what that feels like, just to bring it to contemporary times, it's saying to, if he said, let me talk to you black people for a moment. You remember how you were three-fifths human in this country? Bought and sold as slaves. Remember how you had no hope of home ownership, no vote. You remember how you had to work and you were enslaved? You remember how that felt? You remember how you were called the N-word? That's exactly how the readers of the book of Ephesians would have heard that passage, how you just heard it. So he says, remember Gentiles? So he's talking spiritual. Gentiles, you're separated from God, the promise of God, etc. Remember how that was? But then he says, but thanks be to God. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, he has broke down the dividing walls. He calls it enmity in the New American Standard. The word enmity is a word that means historic animosities. He, the blood of Jesus has broken down the historic animosities between Jews and Gentiles. In contemporary American South, whites and blacks. Other places around the world, racism's everywhere, by the way, because it's a spiritual problem. It's a human problem. But in context, again, American, American South, whites and blacks, Uh, He says, the blood of Jesus has broke down those, those divides. The historic animosities no longer apply. We need to learn about them, lament, we need to reflect. But the division has been broken down through the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, thanks be to God. The blood of Jesus, the cross of Jesus has obliterated that division. So much so, as you continue through Ephesians 2, that we are now, we collectively, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, men and women, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, uh, together we are to be one new body, one new man. The church to be one new temple in which the Spirit of God is pleased to dwell. Because it reflects the kingdom of God on earth and God's love for all people in a credible way. So when he gets to chapter 3, chapter three verse 1, he says this, Therefore, uh, for this reason, what's the reason? For this reason, the reason that God, through the blood of Jesus Christ, has broke down historic animosity between Jews and Gentiles, so that the two will be one new man, one body, one temple, in which the Spirit of God is pleased to dwell. That's the local church. For this reason, he says, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Then he says, time out. Now, Paul, is, is, he'll, he'll get off on a tangent, just like I'm prone to do, but between chapter 3, verse 2, and verse 11, uh, or verse 13, there's a parenthetical statement. So if you're writing, it's like a parenthesis. So he says, for this reason, and what he's going to do, he's about to pray for them. He's about to pray for this diverse body, and then in chapters 4 and 5 and into 6, he's going to tell them, how do you walk, work, and worship God together as one? How do you live that out? But he interrupts himself here, and he says, now listen, I've already spoke to you about this subject. In fact, I wrote an entire letter about the church being one beyond distinctions of ethnicity, economics, etc. I've already written to you about this, and if you've forgotten, go back and read that letter. I wish I could, we had the letter. We don't have the letter. But he wrote an entire letter about this subject to the church at Ephesus. He says, go back and read it. But then he says, it'll explain my insight into the mystery of Christ. I'm in about Ephesians 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 3 or so right now. Uh, And he says, that letter will explain my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now, the casual reader of Scripture will see the words mystery of Christ and automatically assume he's talking about atonement, redemption in Christ, etc. Right? That is not what he's talking about. In Romans 16, where I already talked about his gospel, he, call, he talks about the mystery. Ephesians 3, he talks about the mystery. Colossians 1, he talks about the mystery. And he explains that and says, to be specific. Let me be specific. It's a mystery that people and prophets long to understand, but has only been revealed to us in these latter days. What is that mystery? Ephesians chapter 3, 6, that the Gentiles are one in salvation one in the local church, one in the coming kingdom of God, no different than the Jews. That black people and Asian people and Hispanic people and poor people, no different than the whites, they get the benefit of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, they get to belong to the church, no distinctions at the foot of the cross, and all of us will one day be part of the kingdom of God. This is the gospel of Paul, the gospel of Gentile inclusion. This is the mystery of Christ that he's talking about in Romans 16, Colossians 1, and here in Ephesians 3. And not only that, but in Ephesians 3, 9, he says, and not only was this revealed to us in these latter times, which essentially is the church, bride of Christ on earth as it is in heaven, he says, but the administration of that mystery was also given to me. What does that mean? How do you do it? So if you know this is the will of God, the will of heaven, then how do you do it? So not only do we get a picture of what heaven looks like and where to be that, but to me was revealed and given the administration of that mystery. So I, I know how to do this, and I'm going to tell you how to do it, which he's going to do in chapters 4, 5, and 6. But then he returns out of his parentheses to pray for the people. All right, And so he has prayer there. In, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, he says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven, every family on earth derives its name. Right, Every family, what are you talking about? Black, white, Asian, Hispanic. No matter who you are, every family on earth comes from the same father. Right? We derive our name. And so for this reason, he says, I want to pray for you. I want to bow my head and pray for you. Uh, and, and he says that, that uh, you would be strengthened with power, verse 16, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And he says, verse 18, that you may be able to comprehend what is the, with all the saints. By the way, you know what the word all means in Greek? All. Just, just so you know. All the saints. What is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of God's love? What is he praying? What is he saying? He's saying, diverse church, I want you to experience the vastness of God's love. And maybe the blacks have the height of God's love, but they don't have the depth, the length, the breadth. Maybe the whites, they got the width of God's love, but they don't have the height, breadth, the the age. You see what I'm saying? Each people group from whom derives its name from the Father, like a prism. You know, like a prism, when you spin it, there's all these different angles of colors. That's like what he's praying. He's saying, I want the church to to experience the fullness of the love of God. Just like you do when you go on a mission field and somebody's, you know, I don't know, they're praying in Korean. You have no idea what they're saying, but your spirit agrees and you know, man, oh my gosh, God is so much bigger than the English language. He wants us in the church to experience that. Paul's praying that you could know, experience that kind of love. By the way, I missed in Ephesians 3.10, I should have said it. He says, with well, this one new body, one new man, etc., is also that the manifold wisdom of God will be displayed through the church of the world. Do you know what the word manifold means? I kid you not, no joke. It means multicolored. Look it up in the Greek. This is what Paul's talking about. The multicolored wisdom of God. The expression of the height, the breadth, the length that each people group brings to the family of God. He wants us to experience that. Not just so we can sing kumbaya, by the way, so we can, pro- we can proclaim a credible witness of God's love for all people. And he continues to pray in Ephesians 3, and he gets to the end, he says, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what you could ever ask or imagine. That is not to raise money to build a building. Do you know how many churches use Ephesians 3, 20, 21 to raise money and build a building? It has nothing to do with it. If everybody just gives, God's going to do beyond what we can imagine. It has nothing to do with it. You know what? What he's talking about is God alone is able to make a black man and a white man two and a half miles from Little Rock Central High, second stop in the American Civil Rights Movement, walk, work, and worship God together as one in a local church. Beyond what you could ever imagine. And you get to that level, just like Barnabas, you'll never go back once you experience what that is. So chapter 4, verse 1, then he says, So walk worthy of your calling. What's the calling? To be one in the church, beyond the distinction of this world, for the sake of the gospel. How do you do it? You've got to be loving. You've got to be forgiving. you got to be humble, uh, tolerant, forbearing with one another in love. Why? Because there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is over all people, working people groups, working in all people groups, and working through all people groups. And by the way, you all have gifts too. So it's not just about the mixing, the intermingling, the, the coming one across ethnic lines, but we also have gifts, right? He talks about that in another place, eyes and hands and feet, and we have to learn how also to be one in our gifting as a body so we can advance a credible gospel, right? Later on in chapter five, husbands, got to be one with your wives, right? Children, you got to be one with your parents. Employers and slaves and masters back then, got to be one with you. Gotta, everybody has got to get on board with the love train here. You see what I'm saying? You got to get on the love train, the unity train beyond the distinction of this world. Why? So that we can advance a credible message of God's love for all people in a diverse society. And then he gets to Ephesians chapter six and Ephesians chapter six. And you know, this beginning in uh, uh, verse 10, finally, he says to the diverse church here, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might." You know Why? because if you're strong only in your flesh, in the power of your might, you're gonna gravitate to what's natural. You know what's natural? Birds of a feather flock together. But when we signed up for this Christian thing, I thought it was about living in the supernatural, getting above and beyond what is otherwise natural. If you live in your own strength, you're gonna gravitate to your own people group. You're gonna go where it's easy, where it makes you feel comfortable. Well, where in this book is it ever about how comfortable you are, right? So he says, be strong to be this, to walk worthy of your calling. You're going to have to embrace dependence and be strong in the Lord and the power of his might because it's going to cut against everything that is otherwise natural, right? Everything you otherwise like. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. There's going to be some hard conversations, but you've got to be strong in this Lord. And then he goes on here, right? Ephesians chapter 6, 10, uh, verse 11. Then he says, so church, not Mark Demas, put on the armor of God, collective church. Every you and in six in this in Ephesians 6 is a plural word. Y'all. Y'all put on the armor of God. Collectively as a church, it's got to put on the armor of God. Look what he says Ephesians 6. So that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. What's the scheme of the devil? What's the number one scheme of the devil? Division. Going to break up your marriages. Going to break up the church. He's going to get us fighting, you know, Democrats and Republicans and blacks and whites and... You know, division, it's the root of his schemes is division. He divided the kingdom of heaven, right? He's trying to divide men and women across all kinds of lines, socioeconomic, ethnic, political. Division is the scheme of the devil. And to resist that collectively as a diverse church, you got to put on the armor of God and stand firm against that scheme which would divide us right for our struggle he says verse 12 is not against flesh and blood what is he talking about the color of your skin your cultural heritage you think that that people then didn't deal with what we did we're all humans right you think the battle is flesh and blood the color of skin and cultural heritage the battle is contemporary versus traditional music are we gonna have a contemporary service we have a traditional service division you understand what i'm saying Oh, division we have a white church and a black church based on flesh yeah but those blacks I mean they do gospel music yeah, I don't really like gospel music I don't have you know I so I want to go to church where they just do the kind of music I like well where in the book is it about what you like right so but Paul said in Philippians do not merely think about your own people groups interests but also the interests of other people groups so we're serving up a little gospel this Sunday And that's not your favorite food, right? You look around the room and see all the people getting off on gospel. You say, thank God I even have a seat at this table. And you claim Philippians 2 because next week they're going to be playing some rock and roll and some other folks are going to have to claim Philippians 2 for you. He's talking about flesh and blood, the color of our skin, cultural heritage, kimchi versus chicken at the potluck. You're letting all these things divide you. It's a scheme of the devil. Put on the armor of God, resist it, lay down your rights, self-deny, identify first, not as a Republican or Democrat, white or black, but as a Christian. And walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So this is the scheme of the devil. It's a scheme and we have to stand against the world, the forces, darkness, etc. Then he explains different parts of the armor. This again is not Mark Demas individually. Sure, I can learn something about that, right? Put on the full armor of God. But he's talking to the collective church to resist the schemes of the devil. Division over lines of flesh and blood. And then he says this, verse 6:18, Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verse 18. Now pray for me that boldness will be given me in declaring this message. Casual reader of scripture again thinks he's talking about declaring Jesus. No, no, no. He is declaring Gentile inclusion. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the local church of Jesus Christ, in the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. So most people think Paul was beaten, stoned, run out of town, ultimately gave his life for preaching Jesus. I'm here to tell you that's not true. Generally speaking, sure. But specifically, Paul was beaten, run out of town, stoned, ended up in a Roman prison, and died for preaching this message. The one you just heard this morning, right out of him. Gentile inclusion and otherwise all Jewish church and kingdom of God. How do you know that? Even if Acts chapter 21 and 22 paul gets arrested in the temple y'all remember this just nod your head you remember the rest in the temple paul gets arrested y'all read the bible here Father. yes no he gets arrested in the temple you know why because they thought he brought a black guy into a white church and they threw a fit i could talk about jews and gentiles you wouldn't feel it right they thought he brought a gentile into the jewish court that was reserved for jewish men And the Jews threw a fit. And he gets pulled up on the steps and he talks. He gives a speech, speaks in his own language to his Jewish people, tells his story, the testimony, gets to a point, Acts chapter 22, verse 21. And he says, and then he said to me, meaning Jesus, Damascus wrote, and then he said to me, get up and go, for I'm sending you far away to the Gentiles. I'm sending you to the blacks and to the Asians and to the Hispanics and to the poor and to the marginalized. I'm sending you there. And you know what the very next verse says, Acts 22:22. And they listened to him up until this statement. And then they said, away with him. He is not fit to live. The Jews at the time of Paul did not have a problem thinking maybe we missed it on this Jesus Messiah thing. But they wanted nothing to do with Gentiles being included in salvation, the local church, or the coming kingdom of God. This is the gospel of Paul, the gospel of Gentile inclusion. So what is God doing in our time? Last slide, there's just one more. Chris Rice and Spencer Perkins, you know the Perkins family here from Jackson. They wrote a book, More Than Equals, in 1999. But uh, Chris Rice said this, I have become convinced that God is not very interested in the church healing the race problem, but I believe it is more true that God will use race to heal the church. That's my prayer for you at Fondren. By the way, as I said at the beginning, it's not either you're right, wrong, good or bad. You look around the room, mostly white, don't feel guilty. Just realize just in your own, just like an individual salvation, collectively, there's more to come. God wants you to experience the fullness of his love. And so wherever you're at on this journey, you're in a great place. I wouldn't even be invited. Robert wouldn't have invited me to preach if your staff and people say, hey, we want to keep leaning into this. We don't just want to say, well, we're a white church. We're a black church. We're this church. That's who we are. No, you wouldn't say that about me as an individual. There's always room to grow. And we should be progressing collectively towards Revelation 7, 9. Not just so that we can sing Kumbaya, but so we can advance a credible message of God's love for all people in an increasingly diverse, painfully polarized, and cynical society. Towards that end, you have my prayers. I'm more than happy to help in any way I can. God bless you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here for the amazing work that Robert and the staff have done in the last seven years to bring a church out of nothing and to to this place, the building, the the promise that is here. Your hand upon the church, not only for where it's been, but where it is going and what that means to the city of Jackson and beyond. Uh, Father, I pray, God, you help them on that journey. Understand what is biblical. Seek to walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Take those baby steps but take, taking them, growing from season to season, becoming more a reflection of Jackson, more a reflection of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven for the sake of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.